Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great honor of interviewing yet again, because we didn't uh, deal with nearly half of the stuff that we had to deal with, uh, philosopher Susan Nyman. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, John. And um, yeah, I can say we're doing this again because I really enjoyed the last interview. So um, yeah, we have uh, we have so much stuff to talk about, and you have you uh, a lot of stuff has happened in the so two weeks since we since we first spoke. And well, you have a cold or coronavirus or whatever. Like you have a cold or a flu right now um, in Berlin. There's um, there's cases now in Montreal of the coronavirus. Uh, the fir- yeah yeah the first one was uh, confirmed in a hospital a couple of blocks from my mother's house, which was very wow. unnerving. Um, so it's uh, yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing and also of course the uh, the ex- explosion of violence in India, which has just been getting worse. Which I I couldn't help but think about your book, learning from the Germans, because. I mean, so much of this stuff with the Hindu right, I mean, they they praise the Nazis in their uh, textbooks that they that are sort of used in public schools, uh, indoctrinating the young. Uh, and also a lot of the language of the Hindu right is eerily familiar to me. It sounds very much like the language that uh, that the that the Nazis had, the, the language that you see. In in Italy, with the when the fascists took over you know, under Mussolini, and it's uh, and to some extent you also hear echoes of this um, in in Trump rallies, and it's this feeling of majorities that feel like underdogs, even though they're in control, and feel like we're finally hitting back on these minorities that have been ruining our lives, you know, whether that, although it may seem like we are, um, we're running everything and we have the the numbers and we have the power. In fact, it's these like, you know, Jews or these Muslims or these, you know, whatever. It's these minority groups that are really pulling the strings from, you know, the, the back rooms somehow. I mean, do you see these parallels or? Oh, of course. (laughs) Absolutely. 
Uh, and it's very disturbing how international it is and how it seems to be unaffected by culture and religion. I mean, the fact that in Myanmar, a Buddhist country, uh, you know, uh, racist violence was being perpetrated against Muslims. Uh, I actually have not followed that story lately, so I don't know where things are or just how violent uh, they are at the moment. But the very fact that, you know, when one has this fantasy that Buddhists, at least, are, are relatively peace-loving people, and uh, it's it's an international problem. Um, I, I'm trying to remember whether this terrorist act at Hanau in Germany itself, where ten people were killed, I think that was after we spoke, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, and and of course, I was asked, and and I wrote about to what extent Germans are always scared that they can never escape their Nazi past, and. My take on this is actually that uh, oh, I mean, absolutely uh, appalling act of violence because we really are not as used to um, people going in and spraying people with guns on the street as one is in the United States. Um, but it it doesn't seem to me to be a particularly German problem at all. It seems to be in one line with the right-wing terror in Norway a few years ago and in New Zealand last year and in Texas and so on. So I think it's your, and of course, as you mentioned, the example you began with, uh, India, the India of Trump's great friend uh, Modi, who is uh, a terrible um, right-wing um, I would say proto-fascist, at least my friends who know more about India than I do say that. So the question is, what is going on right now? And I think, um, I mean, this is a partial explanation, and I, I don't think any single explanation is going to work for something that's this pervasive and this devastating. But I think what happened in 19... 89-90, is that the idea of any kind of international solidarity or universalist um, ideology became replaced by a notion of globalization. And globalization may sound as if it's internationalist, but it's not. Globalization is the connection, of course, it's bringing us, among other things, the coronavirus. It has brought us some good things, I imagine, uh, although it's hard for me to say what exactly. But globalization is a process that is run by corporations. It's, a, it's International corporations are the people in power, and they have exactly one interest, which is that everybody on the planet owns an iPhone, let's see, a, a cell phone. Um, everybody on the planet owns certain goods. And it's what, what's so interesting, it's why it's so different from international solidarity. International solidarity is about actors. Um, globalization is 
about passive consumers. It's about the idea that, yeah, we're actually all fundamentally alike. We all want the same stuff. And it's turned the world into a place, first of all, where every place looks increasingly like every other place. But secondly, in place where people feel, and that in itself is scary. I mean, we're, we're, we're losing... Uh, we're losing a sense of of place, of the ability to connect to, um, you know, places and histories that we're attached to. But it's also led to a sense of total powerlessness. And I think that the the um, international incidents of nationalism, which needn't be racist terrorism, but it keeps moving into racist terrorism. I think it's a pathetic re response to this process of globalization, to the feeling that people have that they don't control their own destinies at all. Not only do they not control their own destinies, they don't even know what steps we would have to take to control their own destinies. And why am I saying they? I don't know what steps I would have to take to really be able to make um, you know, decisions that would change the power relations that determine much of what's going on in my life and the planet. And that is a very scary thing because I'm one of the people who ought to know. I'm one of the people who uh, has an international voice. And I feel, I'm sure, I feel slightly less powerless than some people, but I also feel powerless. Um, it's just, I think these things through to some extent so I don't become a nationalist. Yeah, I, I don't think, I, I've, I haven't encountered any ideology or any plan that seems to me to, to provide kind of an airtight solution to the problems that ail us. But I have found one um, you might say a heuristic or a rule of thumb, which is uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's last book, Skin in the Game. It's uh, it's a just a very very interesting book. But his basic principle is that a lot of the problems in the world today um, are caused by the fact that the people making decisions don't have to live with the consequences of their decisions. And he said, if you if you ensure at every level, whether it be deciding on education policy or stop and frisk policies or incarceration or, uh, you know, whether to put a mall here or like a factory there or like a strip mine there. If at every level you try and ensure that the people making decisions have to live with the consequences of those decisions, it will not be a cure all. Like humans are fallible, uh, they they often don't sort of see what's in their best interests clearly. They make mistakes. There will still be mistakes, but he says you will drastically decrease the amount of mistakes uh, that happen in the world if you ensure that the politicians that pass, let's say, strict uh, drug laws, if their kids are going to be subject to those drug laws when they get caught with a bunch of marijuana in their pocket. Like when, if they want to pass like some very, you know, harsh, uh, you know, draconian like incarceration laws, like, well, then their kids, if they want to uh, sign on to a foreign war, uh, then only people that have a direct blood relation uh, that will have to go and fight in the war 
can vote on that uh, on that thing. If you're going to be able to get your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or second cousins, if you're going to be able to make sure that they don't have to go and fight in the war, you don't get to vote yes on invading Iraq. Like you don't get, you know, and I think, you know, at at every level, I mean, just to give you one sort of uh, anecdote, which just proves this case to me is um, at a a particular college that shall remain nameless. um, We had a problem where the bathrooms were just atrocious. They were often like backed up. Uh, they didn't have toilet paper. They were like, they were just vile, you know, often. They didn't have soap in the things. And people complained, uh, professors complained, students complained, and, you know, nothing would would get done, right? And then we had this one ingenious, um, ingenious prof who's a very, uh, very good behavioral economist. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, you know, I think the problem is is that the people who are in control at the college, the deans and the upper administration, they have their own private uh, toilets that they use. So right now we're in the middle of a space crunch in the college. So I think we should propose, we're all being asked to like, you know, have three profs in a two-person office, two profs in a one-person office. We're in a space crunch. I think we should propose that all of the administration's um, bathrooms be turned into offices and storage space. There's absolutely no way they can say no to this because they've been lecturing us on the need to make sacrifices for the last you know year and a half. So he made this proposal. The administration could not say no to it. Uh, so all of their bathrooms were turned into offices and storage space. Uh, and now the, the people in charge of the college had to use the same bathrooms as the rest of us. There has not been a problem with the bathrooms since. They are always clean. They're always filled. They always have toilet paper. They always have soap. They are, you know, because when the people in charge have to send their kids to the public schools, their kids to war, when they have to use the same toilets as everybody else, they have a way of making sure that they work. You know what I mean? John? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I I hate to be, it's, uh, you, you know my work, so you know it's not my style to be the, um, you know, the voice of, uh, uh, what shall I say, doom. And I... Um, I'm happy to celebrate small victories, but people have been making that argument about uh, the U.S. Congress and going to war for a long time and nothing's happened. And, I, you know, my, my feeling is tell it, to, tell it to Mark Zuckerberg. It's fine on a small and local level. I don't see one of the questions that I've been asking myself for a long time about the climate crisis is don't the people in Davos have children and therefore the prospect of grandchildren, you know, Uh that is, uh, you know, supposing they only care about their quarterly returns and they have, uh, uh, you know, they have their safe spaces but there aren't enough mountains in the world to take care of all of their uh, children and grandchildren. And I've I've actually asked some people who, you know, who fly in those circles and they say, no, actually there are enough spaces. You just don't know about them because you're not one of those people, first of all. And, and secondly, they, you know, they uh, depend on technology and they assume that they're going to be technological solutions, that large numbers of people are going to die 
and that they and their families won't be among them. So, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I think the principle is great, but I don't know how it's enforceable when it comes to, you know, really large scale um, questions about power and life and death. But you know what? Uh, I, I've sort of made myself this little rule, which is that I, if I, it's not quite if I don't have something good to say, don't say anything. But um, it's it's close to that. It's I I actually feel a moral obligation not to take up people's time if all I'm going to do is spread a kind of uh, pessimism. Uh, in the public. I mean, you know, there are these people who do this for a living and actually they sell more books than I do. Like John Gray. I don't know if you've ever run. Of across. course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've I met, I've met him twice, actually. He's, uh, oh, yeah. he's, uh, yeah. I, I mean, he's completely like a very, very, um, sort of dark, uh, Tra- he, he calls it a sort of an Augustinian tragic view of the world that he thinks uh, that you're if you it, it's almost sort of, you know, in your book, Why Grow Up, you associate this with a with a stoic view of the world, which I think is a, a very good way of seeing it. But it's that if you kind of expect the worst and prepare for the worst, that's the best way to end up with the, the best possible result. That if you aim like too high, you invariably just end up miserable and probably doing a lot of damage. Well, it's the idea that you know pessimists uh, can at best at be at worst, worst at best they can be pleasantly surprised <laughs> where things don't turn out to be as horrible as they assume they're going to be. Whereas those of us who try and spread some hope in the world are going to wind up feeling um, disappointed. There's no question about it. That's the gap between the ought and the is. But, uh, and I, it is it is a mystery to me how, how Gray keeps, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of copies of the same, you know, gloomy book, basically. But, but, it, um, but, it's, not anyway. a, but it's not a mystery. You, you solved the mystery. I mean, all the way from your doctoral dissertation through to, you know, your I, I wouldn't say it, it comes out as clearly in learning from the Germans, but it it comes through very clearly in evil and modern thought in moral clarity. And then I think it reads you really sort of nailed it perfectly in why grow up your your piece on uh, the section of I think it's chapter two uh, won't get fooled again where you just go right. you talk about Thrasymachus and how the sort of the attraction the the perennial attraction of Thrasymachus's and I think John Gray is is a, a gray haired Thrasymachus I mean he's like uh, he's basically that that kind of like I I was fooled once and i'm not gonna be and so you know i'm just gonna sort of expect the worst and then that way i'll never have my heart broken again yeah i think that's i think that's true it just seems so so simple psychologically i keep thinking there must be a better explanation but maybe there's not but in in any case i we are at a there's no question that we're in a gigantic crisis right now and i know a lot of really smart people 
I don't know anybody who has a straightforward answer, the kind of answer that that people would like us to give. I know some partial answers, um, you know, and I don't know anybody who has sort of one large overlapping. This is how to fix everything, guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, what, what you said is is absolutely true in the sense that, you know, Taleb's idea of skin in the game and, and sort of devolving decision-making to smaller and smaller units uh, of people who are kind of implicated in what's happening. I agree with you. That that solves a, a lot of problems. It solves a lot of problems that we see around us. But then when you see bigger problems like climate change or the coronavirus, um, it doesn't solve those problems like fucking at all. In fact, like the more that you have uh, a sort of a libertarian paradise world, the more that that's a world that ends up being very, very vulnerable to these large scale issues. And we're seeing this right now. I mean, I have a good friend of mine is is living in Wuhan, China right now. Uh, and he's basically I've I've been in contact with him every day since the virus hit and his entire city is in lockdown. This like massive city, right? 12 million people. It's just quarantined off. And you know, he's my friend is very critical of the Chinese state. Uh, openly critical of the Chinese state. Has been like for years. Uh, and uh, he gets away with it somehow, <laughs> but um, but anyway, he, but he says, uh, you know, I'm really seeing the strengths of an authoritarian regime right now, and that kind of makes me nauseous. But the way that they're dealing with a big problem, and also by the way, the way they're dealing with climate change. When he first moved there, uh, but you know, when he fell in love, and he's got he's got a son there now and stuff like that. They've been he's married and so he's very much settled there. But he's a Canadian guy, but he. He said, you know, the when he first moved there, everybody would have to wear face masks on a regular basis because the pollution was so fucking terrible, right? And now everything in Wuhan is gleaming and green and they he they they sold their car because they there's high-speed rail everywhere. And the thing is is like the fossil fuel industry and the car industry and all, they can't screw with the Chinese state the way they can screw with the Canadian state and the American state. Like they can't, they can't rig the system. They can't sort of spread, you know, like climate denialism. They can't. So when it comes to dealing with things like the coronavirus and climate change, China is doing way better than a lot of the free countries. And that messes with my mind so much. Yeah, I entirely agree with you. Um, I, I, know exactly what you're talking about like um, it's it's disturbing it's really disturbing do you know you know daniel kahneman the uh israeli yeah American? he's yeah dude is like one of the most imp- brilliant people alive i mean he's amazing nobel prize winner that deserves it and he was interviewed i saw him at a uh, like a lecture he gave and during the question period somebody said to him uh asked him like the question was sort of, what do you find one of the most disturbing paradoxes of, you know, 2019? And he said, you know, in his adorable, like, really adorable, like, accent, uh, he said, China. <laughs> it's like, that is, he goes, it really disturbs me that some of the problems that we're facing uh, seem to require 
like a much more authoritarian state. And I don't know how to reconcile that with my democratic values. I I feel the same way. Do you, exactly do, you do you have any way out of it? <laughs> I mean, these are exactly the kinds of questions where where I know that I and all of my I'm sure that I have any friends who are Nobel laureates, real friends, but um, I, you know, I know a lot of people gotten basically every other prize, and we're all uh, we're all about the situation the situ- situation that Kahneman is in. Uh, no, I don't. Um, right now, by the way, though, you see, I'm focused on strengthening or rebringing smaller scale questions. I mean, I sort of, my, my priorities, my own political priorities right now are number one, getting rid of Donald Trump, because that has not only local, that has absolutely international uh, consequences. The Chinese are looking to see what uh, the U.S. is going to do about the climate agreement. It, you know, there are many horrible things that could happen if he were um, uh, reelected. And as a matter of fact, you know, I think that a lot of the right-wing reaction uh, and terror that we're seeing, alas. Uh, confirms the idea that America, the United States of America, excuse me, um, still plays a leading role in the world. It's terrible to witness at this moment. But I think you see people from Modi to Bolsonaro saying, hey, if the U.S. can get away with it, why can't we? So I think the first order of business is getting rid of him. The second order of business is coming to a uh, a reasonable climate agreement. I mean, a serious, well, we've got an agreement. It's not good enough, uh, but it's also not being enforced. And then I'm focused as much as I can be on strengthening Europe, which for all of its faults is still the block, the strongest chance of preserving certain kinds of democratic and social justice values that there are. And there, there's plenty to criticize about it. It's just simply, uh, it, it's better than, it's better than other large alternatives. So, you know, while I don't have an answer to what do we do about the whole world, including China, I do have, I, I think, uh, you know, there's the, the great bumper sticker phrase, think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are my global local thoughts for the moment with uh, Trump being, you know, both local and global. Okay. So I have a whole bunch of questions, which I didn't get to last time. And I wanted to just ask you a couple of them. Uh, the, the first um, The first one is... Uh, a sort of a um, a kind of a complicated question. So this is from a historian uh, and genocide scholar named uh, Frank Chalk. He uh, co-authored one of the kind of seminal texts on uh, called the history and sociology of genocide, and it's a, a comparative look at at um, you know all sorts of genocides throughout 
throughout history and you know very much sort of uh looks at at the holocaust as being sort of you know having certain things that are unique about it but as being an unfortunate part of a, a pattern throughout human history which has repeated itself again and again and anyway he's just an all-around like very very fascinating guy he's uh he he's a kind of a real pillar of the academic community and a pillar of the jewish community here in montreal and so he was on the podcast um a couple of months ago and one of the things that he said which uh which he brought up again in reference to to talking to you uh is that he believes that um to a large extent humans are racist by nature now i don't mean racist since obviously race is a social construct it's a, it's an idea with a with a history but what he means is that that humans are tribal we've been a tr- tribal species for most of our history um for you know 300,000 years of our history we've mostly been tribal and so if we saw somebody who sounded unlike us or looked different than us they were very likely because once we subdued a lot of the large predators in ecosystems that we moved into, uh, for a lot of the history of our species, you were most likely to die at the hands of another Homo sapien, not like a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. It was most likely that you were going to be killed by another human, right? Usually from a, another tribe. So, uh, so his his argument was that in the same way that a huge amount of the education of toddlers is, no, don't hit your sister. No, don't, you can't steal his toy. No, no, no. If you listen to, uh, you know, parents of young children and daycare workers, uh, babysitters, they spend most of their time saying no. And there's a simple reason for this, as as Tremblay and others uh, from the Justine Montréal and others have pointed out, the, this sort of what's called a kind of romantic idea that we're born angels and we're corrupted by bad parenting and bad education and violent video games and movies. This simply isn't true, that kids are actually by nature quite quite violent and we have to socialize them to be to to not be violent and to be more generous and more and to restrain themselves. So Frank was saying um, that by the same token he said progressive education is going to happen forever. There is no final, it's not as if like you can undo the racist education uh, that, and then that's it. He's like, if you want to have an open pluralistic multicultural society, every new generation has to be socialized to sort of uh, second guess and restrain their natural tendencies towards prejudice and discrimination. What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot of things. First of all, I've got to say that I tend to be quite suspicious of arguments that appeal to our evolutionary development. Uh, I, I think, it, I realize it has become doxa, that it's, and it's, uh, it's quite unusual to question that entire line of argument. It, it's our metaphysics. I, it's our metaphysics. It's our metaphysics, yeah. But may I point out, first of all, that we have virtually no evidence for any of these claims. None, right? What prehistory is, is, um, you know, 
uh, a time where there was no written history. We don't have records. And uh, the entire evolutionary psychology was in, it was renamed. It began in something called sociobiology at Harvard, where it was pushed by some dubious people. Uh, It was then thought to be so sexist and racist that it went out of business for a couple of decades and it reemerged in the 90s under the names of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology. Uh, It fits the zeitgeist, absolutely. It fits neoliberalism. It fits the idea that all people care about is power and domination. And uh, it's an ideology. I mean, yes, it's a metaphysics, it's an ideology. So let me just say that for a a beginning. Um, I don't believe that we're angels and we're all, uh, you know, simply corrupted by bad parenting and bad schooling. I tend to go with Rousseau, and it's quite interesting. Rousseau was often attributed or thought to have this very naive view of human human history. Um, he doesn't. He does. He says we're not born good. We're not born bad. We're neutral. Okay. Now it's absolutely clear. Having raised three children myself, believe me, I know that they have to be socialized, that they have to be civilized. And um, you know, it's very disturbing the first time you see your sweet little two-year-old on the playground refusing to share any of his three plastic shovels with the strange child that wanders over, even though he can't use three shovels at once. He's only got two hands. So yes, of course, children need to be socialized. Um, That's absolutely right. But they don't necessarily need to be socialized um, to be open to another tribe. And first of all, in the, uh, example that you just were pointing out with somebody's sister. Yes, again, I have, I not only have three children, so I have sibling, I know about sibling rivalries. I have two of my children are twins, so believe me. Um, it, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, conflict, even among twins, right? I mean, you, you cannot get more different than twins. I'm uh, sorry, more similar than twins. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it's not about tribal conflict. It is about conflict and, you know, children do eventually learn that by and large life is more pleasant (coughs) when they learn to cooperate with other beings, uh, than when they simply fight them. But there are social science experiments that are done and, you know, it's true that a, a small child raised in a completely white, na- a small white child raised in a completely white neighborhood will exhibit fear of the first time she sees a black person. That is true. Fear or, you know, anxiety of some kind. But children who are raised in multiracial communities uh, don't see, I, I mean, don't see skin color as any more, uh, what shall I say, essentialist than eye color or hair color, you know? Yeah. So there are, there are all kinds of social psychological experiments about this. 
And I, I think the only thing that <clears throat> that's incontestable is that children, you know, I, I agree with your um, your question. Or children need to be need to be civilized. <laughs> they yeah. need to be civilized, and uh, and they will with every single generation. There's, it's not, you know, we're we're not going to have a day suddenly when people stop um, pushing their way up the sand, up the slide, or uh, refusing to share their toys in the sandbox. Um, those are things that you learn. <laughs> okay, this is a question. This one comes from a, a listener uh, named Noah, um, and he says, uh, why must we carry the shame for terrible actions of the past when every society in all of human history did similar things. What is there to gain by constantly pointing at racial division? Aren't we thus creating it by never letting it be the past? What if we instead concentrated on the story of how we were the first societies in all of human history to transcend it? So I'm in favor of both of those things, but I don't think you can transcend without acknowledging that you have something that needs to be transcended in your past. And here I think societies function quite a lot the way um, individual human beings do. That is, um, you know, if you've suffered some kind of trauma in your past, it would be great to be able to say, uh, you know, forget about the past, look to the future, don't dig up old, uh, old sadness, but as any psychotherapist in the world and most people with a little bit of common sense and understanding of human behavior will tell you we just don't work that way okay. so while i'm absolutely in favor and i believe that i said this last time john but i do a lot of interviews so forgive me um i'm not a hundred percent sure let me just repeat myself then if it's re repetition by saying i think it's terribly important to that every culture have heroes and that we be able to decide on people who have actually done things no you did you did not say this last time this is great <laughs> okay yeah mm. yeah uh, okay so so here's my again um parent child metaphor um I think that in order to be healthy human beings, we need to have some kind of grown-up relationship to our parents. And what that means, whether your parents were awful, and sometimes parents really are awful, you can say, because they themselves were traumatized and they pass it on to their kids, but we know that that does happen. Um, or whether your parents were great, they made decisions for your life that you had no choice about, okay? Where you lived and where you went to school and what religion you practiced and um, what music you listened to. All of that stuff was out of your hands. Um, in, and, of course, you know, a whole lot of values that you picked up. And I think being a healthy grown-up involves sifting through all those things and saying, you know, some of the choices my parents made are choices I would have made myself, and I'm glad that they did it, and I want to pass them on to my own children. 
And some of the things are things I'd just as soon do without. I'm, you know, um, I'm going to leave it. And I think if you can't do both, if you can't find something to admire and be thankful for in your parents, um, but also develop some critical distance towards them, if only even if they were wonderful, because they were wonderful in a different time and uh you know not every not all of their solutions are going to work um in the next generation i think if you don't have that um you're going to be extremely torn your own identity is going to be shaky and i'm arguing that this is exactly the kind of relationship we need to cultivate towards our countries we need to be able to say you know this kind of thing we did pretty well. And there was this historical moment that was really, uh, you know, I'm proud of. And had I been there at the time, I would have, I don't know, um, you know, gone on the uh, freedom rides in my case in the United States or, you know, participated in Freedom Summer or, or some working class strikes or whatever it would have been, you know. Um, I think it's important also to have uh, cultural heroes. You, we uh, emailed just a little bit about Leonard Cohen. Um, I think those kinds of people are extremely important in, in forming one's own uh, sense of who one is and how you place yourself. So, so I am all for looking to the future, but we're not. We're people who are born in space and time. And we cannot simply ignore uh, those frameworks, those um, things that happened before us, even if they're things that seemed okay at the time, displacing indigenous peoples, um, being completely sexist, you know. Um, <clears throat> you can, I, I mean, without damning people who did that you can say look um there is such a thing as moral progress we have gotten better in a few ways and uh it's important to acknowledge that but it's important to acknowledge what the sins of the past are okay that's uh that, that's good so okay this is uh, another this is a question actually from a uh, a listener who has also actually been a, a guest on the podcast, the novelist and lawyer uh, Alexander Boldisar, he listened to our our conversation, and uh, and he wrote a very very long. I I can't go over all of it, but he wrote a very long response, a very passionate response to <laughs> to the discussion. Um, he said. Um, uh, dear Professor Nyman, it's it's been a long time since I came out of listening to something with a sense of a person's intelligence, ethics, and well-meaning while simultaneously disagreeing with her so strongly and consistently <laughs> that I found myself shouting back at the podcast. <laughs> wow. Um, All right. Um, especially, okay, so I should tell you a little bit of background. Uh, Alexander is his... Um, his family is from Slovakia, and his grandparents were actually uh, Holocaust survivors. They were Jews in um, in Czechoslovakia, well, then Slovakia. But um, so he said, um, especially her justifications of communism. 
Um, the intent argument was really annoying to me. Um, if you read Lenin, it's clear it was not manslaughter, but murder. He advocated murder as a means of achieving revolution from the start. Stalin didn't corrupt Lenin. He just extended him. The goal of equality doesn't wash out that murderous intent any more than deliberately shooting a rich person because he's rich or a white person because he's privileged washes out the murder intent. And as for her claim that no family of a Holocaust victim has ever survived without trauma, uh, she has clearly not looked hard enough. My mother regularly refers to her aunts and uncles being turned into soap we joke about absolutely everything in my family, including the Holocaust. And the only familial trauma would be an expectation of toughness. When my friends bitch and moan about anxiety, my mother might say, my father survived the camps and he never complained, so get over yourself. <laughs> uh, to me, that seems like a, perhaps perverse to someone like Susan Nyman, strengthening of the psyche, not damage. As someone whose family went through both Nazis and communists, I stand by firm my view that the only difference was the wrapping paper and the vagaries of winners versus losers in war. But if she tried to call anyone in my family a victim, they would be very much annoyed. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you what do you say to this? Boy, that's a lot uh, a lot to try and respond to. Um, Look, black humor is a great, uh, you know, defense against many things, and I'm all in favor of it. Um, and I know that it's uh, something that's often used by um, survivors of many things. Um, I admire people who refuse to dwell on the ways in which they were victims. And I do think there's something healthy about that. But I think, I think it's, put it this way, I think it's healthier than the opposite, which is <laughs> entirely focus on their victimization. But I have known a lot of Holocaust survivors and, um, you know, I think... Every and every therapist I know, and you know, I know many therapists here, of course, who've had a lot to do with survivors. Um, just because you deny that you're having a trauma doesn't mean that you're uh, not having it. I mean, but this is a very difficult thing for me to say. I, I, I it is not my job to insist on uh, the trauma of people I've never met and you know, try to make them feel worse about themselves. Maybe the, this person's family are the single survivors and, you know, who in, were in no way traumatized. I, um, I, it's not something that I've, um, that I've ever encountered and I've had a lot of experience. I, it doesn't mean when I say traumatized, it doesn't mean that um, I don't know plenty of people who've had um, wonderful lives. Okay. After losing their entire family at Majdanek or something. I mean, I thinking of one woman I know in particular, um, but plenty of others. So of course, I'm not saying that they needed, you know, that 
everyone who survived the Holocaust is a wreck. Um, I'm just saying that denying that you're traumatized isn't equivalent to actually not being it. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm beginning to shake my head about the number of people who, um, you know, really want to insist on the equivalence of Nazism and communism. And it's certainly the case of many, if not most, many people from Eastern Europe. Um, I, I'm beginning to feel quite helpless in face of that insistence. And I wonder what the source of that insistence is. It is not the subject of my book. In my book, I simply argue, and I do it with numbers that were fact-checked by four historians. No, by three historians and one philosopher. Um, that East Germany, which was a communist country, did for the first four decades after the war a better job of... Um, putting former Nazis on trial, getting them out of office, um, teaching the simple truth that Nazism was brutal and uh, insisting that being liberated from the Nazis was something to be grateful for. This was not the lesson that four decades of West Germans learned. As for the gigantic question, um, you, you know, were I mean, it's so clear that these two this, these two um, systems were not equivalent. They um, they had some um, they had some things in common, but. Um, they were they were simply not equivalent systems. So I have to ask, why why is it that people so want to insist on that equivalence? And I really don't know the answer. I mean, I know the answer for some people. I know I I know the answer for, let's say, uh, West Germans with Nazis in their families. The insistence on the equivalence is, well, if communism was just as evil as uh, fascism, then my parents and grandparents were fighting evil too. And that's the reason for the insistence in this country. Now you can say, and you brought this up the last time we spoke, John, that many people from Eastern Europe want to uh, insist on the same equivalence. Um and they point to their own experience. This is, you know, I will not deny that millions of people died in um, Stalinist terror. But, you know, I, I, I mean, do we... Do we want to go there? Do we want to talk about the numbers of people who 
died in <coughs> wars begun by the United States, for example. Um, I don't think we do. I think body counts get to be a, a pretty grim sort of reckoning. So all that I wanted to insist on is a difference in structure and ideology. And because I deeply believe that not only bodies, but minds and ideas are real, I think ideological differences are real differences. I think, for example, that it's tremendously important that no socialist party was racist, has ever been racist, that every socialist party has insisted on uh, international solidarity. Now, um, it's certainly the case that there was plenty of uh, racism in parts of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, no question about it. Racism uh, is it's, uh, it's a feature of, I don't think it's a necessary feature of, uh, of human life, as your, as your other questioner was arguing, but it's certainly a deep one, and it certainly recurs in all different kinds of situations. But ideologically, um, nationalism and racism have never been a feature of uh, socialist or communist ideology, and um, that makes it absolutely different from fascism in my book. Okay. Uh, this other other question pertained to uh, the section of your book where you were talking about um, coming to terms with uh, with I mean, there's that just very, very haunting, haunting chapter where you talk about uh, Emmett Till and, and, you know, what happened to him and then his, his mother deciding to to sort of have his um, his coffin you know, open and to see, you know, what had, what had been done to her son and all this stuff. I mean, it's very, very in intense. Uh, and you talk about like, to what extent can we actually, can we relate to that? Can we, or relate to a Holocaust survivor or to any of these things? And then you, you sort of, you branch off uh, into a discussion of cultural appropriation and, yeah. I was wondering if you could sort of chime in. I mean, this is this is definitely, I would say, of your of your books so far, this is uh, by far the most controversial one. Learning from the Germans, you you trip a lot of wires here. We're we're only really even getting <laughs> yeah. to a few of them, but this is um, another another one of those trip wires that you that you sort of. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there really is a sense in this book where you're kind of you're at a stage in your life where you're like, I've proven myself. I don't give a fuck now. I'm just gonna say what I think. But like reparations, yeah, let's do it. Uh, you know, East Germany, not so bad. Cultural appropriation, come on. Like, like it's just it's kind of amazing. But uh, so, can you sort of what what is your feeling about cultural appropriation? Yeah, well, um, I hate it, but um, I mean, I'll talk. <laughs> I mean, I hate the discussion, but let me um, let me say you're absolutely right. I am at a point in my life where I feel like you know, if I have a microphone, um, I'm there's absolutely no reason to hold back from um, using it. Um, otherwise, there's no point. So, yeah, um, I, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad to. I'm glad to be here for that part of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So, but look, the first time I I heard the cultural appropriation discussion, I was in Mississippi, and I was actually quite shocked by it. This was a few years ago. It wasn't quite as um, as all predominant as it is now. And uh, the more I've thought about it, the angrier the argument makes me. That is the argument being that it's only appropriate to talk about um, um, one. Well, it's a little little tricky. Is it you're not supposed to talk about anyone else's pain and sorrow or anyone who's not a member of your tribe's pain and sorrow? Um, You know, does it does I mean, if. You're not supposed to talk about anyone's pain or sorrow. That makes us all into solipsists, yeah? Uh, I mean, I'm talking to... Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking to a philosopher. So, you know, I think about Wittgenstein's quote, you know, try doubting in a real case whether someone is in pain. I mean, the whole point is to get us to feel other people's pain, right? Mm -hmm. The the idea that um, you... I, I mean, the only way in which we can break down barriers between tribes is actually through art and uh, in the broadest sense. I don't, uh, you know, I think uh, art is much more powerful than arguments. And one saw this historically in the case of, um, of the Holocaust. It was when people started writing um Holocaust survivor memoirs, when they started to be published and people started reading them, that you had a kind of breakthrough in the German sense of themselves as uh, as the victims. You know, oh wait a minute, there were other victims too. I know this seems very hard for um, uh, non-Germans to follow, but it and it took me a very long time to realize. But that's how it was. Uh, I think you see this now with um, with work appearing in all different uh, countries, work can be novels, it can be film, uh, less visual arts usually, although visual arts can um, can do something, music, of course. But uh, what's so odd about the... Uh, reproach of cultural appropriation is I am old enough to remember when black music, African-American music, which is now, of course, the dominant um, music, popular music of the world, uh, was called race music. And it wasn't played on standard radio stations. And it was considered a huge triumph when African-American music was played on a normal station. Um, because it suggested that it had universal power and universal uh, appeal. And, I, you know, it's it, people, of course, have forgotten that. I'm, um, I'm older than some of the people who are complaining about cultural appropriation. Of course, there's been exploitation. I'm not in favor of that. And, of course, there have been bad versions of artistic... Um, artistic experience. I mean, you, I, I talk about that in the, uh, the Emmett Till chapter because as I was writing it, in fact, as I was in the Mississippi Delta researching it, 
there was this huge controversy at the Whitney Museum in New York um, for many people who had never heard of Emmett Till. Um, there was a white artist who had painted a picture of Emmett Till in uh, in an open coffin. I went and looked and at that. I went and looked at that after you, you know because you talked about it in your book. Wow. You saw it online. The, I, online. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So oh, that was cringeworthy. Now, why did you think it was cringeworthy? Um, well, I perhaps I was sort of, you know, sort of colored by your descriptions because um, it was cringeworthy um, for the same reason that I found Life is Beautiful cringeworthy. Uh, for wow. the same, there was, I, I just, you know, you know, I, I have a sense of the sacred um, when I'm walking through a forest with my sons. You know, there, there, there's something it, it's hard to sort of. I think you sort of you somehow you I think humans have a natural sense of the sacred. Um, but I, I thank you. But you, I think you also cultivate it by um, by sort of behavior. So I you know, my wife and I ran a day camp for a number of years called Wild Side Day Camp, where we would get kids in touch with nature and stuff like that and i remember there was this moment where we were walking through a forest with some little kids and with our our two sons and one of the kids like took out like a a granola bar and he he you know started eating and they threw his package just on on the ground and you know one of my sons just turned at him and looked at him with such disgust and like, like as if he had just like you know pulled out his dick or something. Like he just said, "You uh, how do you say?" He said, "Like that's obscene." You know, Good. What are you doing? He's like, "That's obscene. Pick that up." You know, and it's the same sort of feeling where you know if somebody walks into our church, and you know a man, and you, you don't take off your hat. It's like, what are you doing? Like, take right. take off your hat. Like, so. Uh, I felt that same feeling of a, a kind of a, a knee jerk um, feeling of disgust that I had when I watched Life is Beautiful, when I looked at that painting. It felt like it was just not taking the subject matter seriously. Right. I I agree with you entirely about that, but it's not because she was right. I mean, an African-American artist could have also not taken it seriously. That's the thing. Sure, yeah. And, you know, I haven't read this book. There's a big cultural appropriation debate at the moment going on about a book about Mexican um, refugees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I haven't read the book. Of course, the the press has been so bad that it's kind of put me off writing the book um, because people have described it as cringeworthy. But again, you know, my feeling is the the criteria is, is it good art or not? You know, is it is it the kind of art that will genuinely put you in a space to appreciate a perspective that you otherwise never would have uh, never would have had access to? Then it's um, then it's a blessing. And, you know, look at, uh, so I, for me, the, the great novels are still the, the 19th century novels, Middlemarch or, or, um, or Tolstoy. And those novels are still great novels 
not because I have a particular interest in the lives of the 19th century Russian aristocracy uh, or of the small town English uh, village in the Midlands that Eliot was writing about, but because they're great art and they have something that is both universal and particular. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, it was funny. I, when I started thinking about this, I got into an argument with a friend of mine um, who said, who was actually wanted to go so far as to say, well, white people should never sing gospel. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the fact that they're saying like, uh, so white people shouldn't sing a music that was created by uh, slaves who were taught English and Christianity by white people who were taught English and Christianity by colonizers from Southern Europe who were taught Christianity by people from North Africa and the Middle East who appropriated it from Jews. From like It just gets into this infinite regress exactly. of fucking insanity. Like, what? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, like... And- Anthony Appiah, uh, in his wonderful book, The Lies That Oh, Bind. isn't that a beautiful book? Oh, my God, yeah, what yeah. a good book. <laughs> yeah, he's one of my very favorite, one of the very few philosophers actually writing today who I just always am happy to read. It's not just that I admire him. I'm really happy to read his books. Yeah. Um, oh, his books are delightful. The only criticism I have of his books, <laughs> and it just, you know, I keep waiting for him to – is that I wish he would write with a little bit more courage. I, I I wish he would write more like you. Like I wish he would take more risks because I I love his books, but I feel like he's so uptight and he always pulls his punches and he, he's just too careful. It's just like you know, there's so many times where you see him going in a direction and you're like, come on, just come on, come on, come on. Come on, baby. I'm rooting for you. Like, just take your argument to its conclusion. And then he pulls back and he, like, you know, turns the page. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> but yes. What should I say? Yeah. I, he, um, you know, he is one of the philosophers that I uh, most admire. I mean, you can, you can make so many harsher criticisms of so many other people. And he also, he comes from a very interesting and very strange world, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, the other thing that one has to say in his in his defense, I mean, I don't, I don't know. No, he, Anthony doesn't need to be defended. I, I know him to some degree. Um, I, he doesn't need to be defended, you know. I thank you for saying he should write more like me. What can I say? <laughs> well, I think there is, there is like, you know, if I may be an essentialist, there is something about the Jewish tradition, which uh, I, I've seen this, you know, I mean, Nietzsche was writing about this in the 19th century. There is something about this kind of, I don't know, just radical truth telling, you know, kind of like just sort of, which is part of the rabbinical tradition. It's part of the, and I think you know, if you get into if you if you're a product more of like a you know a Ghanaian slash British tradition, which which very much values restraint and politesse, and you know being like just being 
civil and polite. That has all sorts of wonderful things uh, to recommend it. I mean, those people make wonderful dinner party guests and great husbands and wives and friends. And they, they make they, it's, it's wonderful in many respects. But when it comes to doing philosophy, uh, I don't know if it's um, the best. I don't know if it's the best kind of background. Uh, you know, there's that wonderful like uh, section in Nietzsche's Joyful Wisdom where he talks about uh, it's just absolutely glorious. Where he says like uh, Europe holds a, a great ha- owes a great debt of gratitude to the Jews. They have taught us how to like think in a clearer and clean way, and they've taught us. And he, and he goes through like the different types of he says you know whenever you're reading somebody you can always f- hear their ancestors speaking through them and he and the the one that i just thought like just wounded me because it just completely describes me is he says the sons of protestant ministers you can always <laughs> tell because they feel like something has been proven so long as it has been stated warmly and and like and roundly and he says but uh you know but the the jew uh, who is custom is accustomed to being not trusted uh, realizes that you need to bring uh, you know many many you need to bring like reasons and arguments and you need to oh. like it, it's a it's a beautiful passage but uh, I feel like he his background uh, does not prepare him to be as as fearless you know but uh, anyway. Well, you know, but let's put it, I mean, Anthony is, at this point in his life, um, you know, you can't be more privileged, actually, than he is. Yeah. But um, that was for a long time not true. And I have to say that there was a lot of racism involved in that. There were a lot of people who didn't uh, consider him to be a real philosopher. Um, For real? Wow. Oh, Oh, yeah. And I have, I, I mean, we're not good friends, but we're sort of involved in a working group, so we see each other uh, from time to time. Um, I have never heard him complain about that, but I know what was said behind his back. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So. That's, uh, well, I mean, Michael, the, the African-American um, sort of professor, academic, Michael Eric Dyson, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yeah. he, he was on Bill Maher. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and Bill and they they asked Bill Maher asked him about this book that we're both of us you know, we have not read the the book where it's a, a white woman who wrote about migrants and things like that, and Oprah recommended it and and all this stuff. And Michael Eric Dyson's uh, response was because uh, Bill Maher was sort of saying, "Well, how come her book is no good just because she's white?" And he said, "Oh, come on." He said, it, "It's not it's not that she's white; it's that the book sucks." He said, like, you know, like he goes, you know, Eminem is considered by most hip hop artists to be the greatest hip hop artist of his time because he does it well. <laughs> like and he, he and he gave all these examples of like, you know, white artists that do black art really, really well. And he said, you know, and he even mentioned the one that you talk about in your book, the uh, the sort of the Korean hip hop videos. <laughs> What's his name? That guy, like uh, Gangnam Style, yeah, yeah, right. And he, he goes, he goes. There are people that can appropriate a culture and get it right, and if they can get it right, wonderful. That's that's wonderful. He goes. What sucks is when somebody parachutes in and does it 
uh, he said, like, you know, if you're going to steal our culture, steal it like Elvis, you know, do it well, you know, like, don't don't steal it and like get everything wrong. And then it's just embarrassing. That's nice that Michael Eric Dyson said that, because I entirely agree. That's, um, it, you know, as long as you do it well. Uh, and but but most importantly, you know, I, I just I don't see any hope for us. Um if we can't appropriate a little bit of each other's cultures, you know, and no one will ever be able to do that for all the cultures that there are. And it's often quite uh, random that a particular culture appeals to you. But if you don't try and get to know another culture well, um, and that could include, if you do it well enough, that could include, you know, making black music or writing about uh, a completely different tribe. Um, if we don't do that, we're lost. So and the other thing that that, um, that Anthony Appiah points out somewhere uh, in The Lies That Bind is the whole cultural appropriation debate is just such a capitalist conception of culture, you know? I mean, culture is not the kind of, the most important thing about culture is not being owned, you know? It's not the kind of thing that you do own. So, anyway. Yeah. So, in this this question comes from uh, a listener uh, in Charlotte, uh, and she says, uh, and this is, pertains to your your last book, not keep uh, learning from the Germans. To why grow up? And she says, uh, uh, Professor Nyman, um, you write, keeping one eye on the way the world ought to be, while never losing sight of the way it is, requires permanent, precarious balance. It requires yeah. facing squarely the fact that you will never get the world you want, while refusing to talk yourself out of wanting it. It is what it is has become a common American expression said with a touch of stoic sigh to comment on some state of affairs that looks particularly hopeless. Insisting that it ought to be different will often earn you the kind of bemused condescension reserved for the child who kicks the chair that caused her to stumble. It takes courage to insist that a regime that may kill, torture, or jail you ought to be different, and we rightly honor those who are able to find it. That kind of courage is never easy, but it is usually straightforward. It is often easier to muster than the courage to withstand the various forms of ridicule with which more democratic cultures undermine their critics. It's an embarrassing fact that we are often more afraid of embarrassment than a host of other discomforts, but it isn't less true for all that. How often have you refrained from voicing hope or indignation for fear of being dismissed as childish. Oddly enough, that fear is adolescent, born of a time when few things feel worse than being regarded as less grown up than your peers. Here Kant can help, not by providing consolation, but by assuring you that your failure to be consoled by one or another version of Stoicism is not your failure. You are right to be outraged. A satisfied mind is no substitute for a world in which behavior is appropriately rewarded by a grape instead of a cucumber, if that's the going rate. Where the, ba- where the balance between behavior and reward is out of kilter, it needs to be repaired, not by working on your own demands 
for reparation, but by working on the world. And then she writes, uh, whilst I love this passage and agree with it 100%, as somebody who has struggled with depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, how do you maintain this vision and also at the same time maintain your mental health, Professor Nyman? Wow. Um, right? Right? <laughs> I, read, uh, I read that. I teared up so hard when I read that question. Look, the honest answer is with difficulty. I struggle with depression, too. Um, and um, I meant exactly what I said in that passage, and I appreciate hearing it read back to me. I, you forget kind of what you write, um, because... Uh, it actually describes uh, how I'm feeling right now. And it's a very difficult way to feel. And I, I, I don't want to deny that. Look, I think um, practically there are all kinds of things that people can do. Uh, and one of them is making yourself remember the pieces of the world that are the way they should be. You talked about getting out in nature. I think it's, it's, uh, really crucial and it's really, uh, um, you know, it's, it's healing. It's, it's, uh, tends to produce a sense of, if you're lucky, uh, awe, reverence and gratitude for the pieces of the world that, are the way they should be. So that's one thing. Listening to good music, um, reading good literature. I mean, I'm honestly, I, so I, I, I understand exactly what this person is asking. I am at the moment, I often watch movies at night. Um, and when I'm feeling precarious, which, uh, I am at the moment in this particular um, in this particular time in history. I'll ask myself, wait, um, which movie are you going to watch tonight? You know, I mean, I don't, I, I never watch trash because it, it bores me, and then I, you know, and depresses me as well. But you know, specifically looking for things that are uplifting um, and not dismissing them as kitsch. Um, is very important to get a sense of of uh, the goodness in the world, and to let yourself be re-inspired. Uh, reading inspiring biographies is another um, thing, um, and another thing that I find really helpful, I mean, in addition to all of the normal things that people advise you to do and they're right to advise you to get a little exercise, try yoga. I keep two of my kids are into meditation. I haven't been able to force make myself do it, but people, a lot of people swear by it. Um, I find being around small children, at least if you're not around them 24 <laughs> seven, um, you know, which, uh, as anybody who's raised them knows, can can you you forget the wonder when you're in the day to day business of taking care of them all the time. But I 
<coughs> just had the uh, opportunity of, of spending a couple of hours with a two-year-old, which I don't usually do because I don't yet have grandchildren. Um, and it changed my day entirely because even if that particular two-year-old is no less a stranger to, you know, pushing people aside to get to the top of the slide, as we were discussing before, there is something about the wonder that small children have for the world that absolutely gives you hope that the world could begin again. And this is, of course, something that Arendt uh, says in talking about natality uh, as a fundamental part of human being. That is the fact that um, we keep being born, that we don't live forever. Um, but it's not all about death either. We keep being born. And, um, you know, those are, uh, those are the kinds of things that help me. Love, of course, you know, any moments of love um, of whatever kind, romantic love, love of your children, um, love of your friends. I mean, all of those are intensely important in uh, keeping on, keeping on. But as I say at the beginning of that paragraph that you nicely read back to me, it is a permanent struggle which is why I think people tend to relapse into one or the other options. They relapse either into cynicism, in which you just say, okay, the world sucks, there's nothing I can do about it, um, I'm not going to get fooled again or disappointed, or relapse into some kind of violent dogma and we see that going on all over the world i mean that is part of what's behind this nationalist racist dogma blame everything on those others and um you know if we could only get rid of them things would be okay um whereas and either of those positions is easier than the position that i'm advocating but i do think that the position i'm advocating is the most moral and the most true one even though it's also the hardest Okay. Uh this this question it's from a listener who uh asked that her name be uh with she didn't want me to mention her name, but uh she says, uh Professor Nyman, um in Why Grow Up you talk uh, lovingly about Simone de Beauvoir's uh travels, you know, across uh you write uh Simone de Beauvoir, um her descriptions of walking are as, rapt as rapturous as Rousseau's. In 1934, for example, she walked solidly for three weeks, keeping away from main roads and taking shortcuts through woods and fields. Every peak was a challenge. Eagerly, my eyes drank in the magnificent scenery, lakes, waterfalls, hidden gorges and valleys. I carried all my possessions on my back. I had no idea where I would sleep each night, and I was still on the move when the first star pierced the sky. Often I could not bear the thought of being cut off from grass and trees and sky. At least I wanted to keep their scent with me. So instead of taking a room to the inn, in the inn I would trudge on for four or five miles and beg hospitality in some hamlet, and the smell of hay would drift through my dreams. Uh, how can you... Or what do you think the author of The Second Sex 
and clearly one of your intellectual heroes. What would she think about the conception of womanhood being proffered now by the Me Too movement? And by, you know, and, and she, she goes on to this whole thing and she says, like, uh, you know, listening to the Harvey Weinstein uh, trial and the, the commentary on it, um, essentially there's a conception of, um, and I think you know who the questioner is. <laughs> we talked about this in email, but uh, uh, there, there's a concep- conception of womanhood which, uh, which she sees as being kind of neo-Victorian. And that is this fragile, which seems very much at odds with the kind of grown-up womanhood that uh, de Beauvoir celebrates and that you, in fact, celebrate in, in all of your works, but um, especially in Why Grow Up. Okay, very good question. Um, uh, lots of facets. First of all, I can remember coming to Berlin as a 28-year-old and feeling absolutely liberated because uh, I could walk home at three in the morning and after a while I got used to not looking over my shoulder. (laughs) It was perfectly safe. Um, I could go into a bar, sit down, have a conversation with a stranger and uh, get up and leave. And those were the kind of experiences that I hadn't been able to have in uh in the u.s it was simply too dangerous um you know any uh i mean danger of rape is really quite real there uh i cannot speak for montreal montreal is always supposed to be more um european and canada is supposed to be more sane um it it is (laughs) big time yeah yeah yeah. no i i i'm sure that it is but um uh you know so so there was this very liberating sense that i had um that wasn't the case in the states and the the me too thing so so i so i i guess the answer to that is you know different places often dictate different behavior okay um i had a really interesting reaction to me too because first of all every single woman i know again i didn't talk to any canadians i do have a few canadian friends but they're somewhere else at the moment every woman i knew suddenly had a story that we were telling each other and I mean, Hollywood is just the tip of the iceberg and it may be more grotesque because certain, you know, the certain things that are at issue in Hollywood, uh, I'm talking about Harvard university, um, and any other university that I know of, um, every woman I know, including myself had had situations and not just, somebody making a pass and it's somebody in power making a pass and it's being unpleasant, but somebody in power, um, pushing for a sexual relationship that changed the course of our lives. 
um, in the case of my friend, and she'd never said anything like this to me before, a close friend. She had actually wanted to study <coughs> something in the natural sciences and wound up, she's now a very distinguished um, professor in the humanities. I don't want to identify her. In my case, um, it very much changed where I studied and uh, the course of my life. So, uh, and so there was and there was a cost. Exactly, there was a cost, and because both me and my friend, if uh, you know, and, and many other people are reasonably happy with the way our lives had turned out, we don't go on and on about it. But the cost was definitely there. And it was there in a way that we all thought 40 years ago, you just have to suck it up. Now, so I have twin daughters who are now 29. They had been coming to me since high school, complaining about, um, I mean, in one case, a teacher who made such overtly sexual remarks to one of my daughters that I was quite shocked by it. But what I basically told them was you got to suck it up. <laughs> you know, it's a drag and it's offensive. Um, one of my daughters uh, works in film. She's not an actress. Uh, she's a writer and um, producer <clears throat> just beginning her way. Somebody says, Oh, I'm interested in working with you. Um, she says, sure, here's my, you know, email connections, phone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's get together. He sends her a dick pic. Oh God! Oh my um, God! You know, and so that she took for a while, and uh, she's pretty much still done it. You know, dressing like dressing so down <laughs> that you know <clears throat> she doesn't even look professional anymore because that's one of her ways of dealing with it. But when Me Too started happening. I went to both of my daughters and I apologized. And I said, you know what I've been doing? I've been doing exactly something that in my own writing I have railed against for years. I've been telling you to accept the world as it is. To be realistic. And I'm sorry because you were exactly right. This is not something you should have to accept. So... I mean, I don't actually think it's neo-Victorian. Again, you know, people have different um, experiences depending on exactly what they are and where they work. But I can tell you from, um, you know, the 1980s at Harvard to uh, the present day in Los Angeles, women are really barraged with, um, unwanted sexual attention that yes you can say no to in fact all the women I know at least in so far as they were talking about it have said no to but they but it comes at a cost it comes at a real cost I think in 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 Hollywood it's perhaps uh, if I you know listen to my daughter's perhaps stronger she couldn't get uh, an agent for a long time. She's finally got one because uh, all of them said, sure, I'll represent. I can date you as they say nowadays. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's Victorian. I actually, what I actually think 
is, as in the dick pic story, which is is by no means unusual. That's actually quite standard. When I listen, and when I listen to what this kid's high school teacher was saying to her, I was shocked. I never had a lover say that to me. You know. <laughs> I know when I when I heard about the dick pic thing, I was like, "That is just." I mean, because cause even if you're a really skilled photographer, it's hard to make that look hot. I mean, like it's a, you know, like if it's in real life, maybe you know in the moment, but it's yeah, it's a it's a strange, it's a strange move. But I yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, it's odd. So, but 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 what I so but what I think is the case, and um, you know what I what I've learned from my own children that I wouldn't necessarily learn from my students because you wouldn't have as explicit conversations. Um, I think the the sexual world, and for all of the obvious reasons, online pornography, everything else has has gotten um, so much more raw and crude than it was. Uh, when I was my you know, a generation ago, um, I don't, by the way, think it's made our erotic life any better. In fact, I hear from younger people that's made it worse. That everything is out there. It's too. It's it's too much. But it is out there. <clears throat> my uh, again, I'm being anecdotal, but um, but I think relevantly, um, I, my kids have, my daughters have have even said. You second wave feminists didn't accomplish anything. Um, now the expe expectation is, yes, we'll all have jobs, but we will also look like and behave like porn stars as well. And I think there's something in that. So, you know, I was actually pleased about the verdict. I did not listen to all of the testimony. Um in the Weinstein case. But what pleased me was that the jury seemed to recognize the complexity of the relationships between sex and power. I mean, sex is really complicated, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so is power. And when they come together, um, you know, uh, one one really needs to have an eye open to the ways in which uh, women have been women have been disadvantaged. I mean, again, I'm always so the, one of the reasons why I refuse to um, uh, I've always refused to work on feminist theory. Uh, partly, it just I am a universalist. This is what I am culturally. But I also am quite wary of uh, speaking from the position of a victim and nobody. I mean, most of us don't want to be victims. This goes back to um, your earlier question from the Slovakian um, about his family as Holocaust victims. Um, it's a powerless position to be in and nobody wants to um, nobody or well. No, I won't say nobody wants to do that. This is a book that I'm supposed to write about victims and heroes, and I haven't. If I had, if I had worked it all out already, I would have written it, but I haven't. Um, there is this odd turn that we've had in the last uh, 50, 60 years where people do fight over competitive victimhood. But 
I don't want to put myself in that position, uh, which is probably why I, for a good 40-some longer, actually, I said 50 years of my life, I did say to myself, suck it up, um, you know, sexism is a factor in the world, and sex is abused as, you know, not a thing of uh, joy and wonder, but as a way to put pressure and a way to express power and so on, and that's just the way it is, and I'm not going to bitch and moan about it. But in thinking about it, and, and actually, you know, both after Me Too and then after your email questioning, I had to think, um, actually, my life would have been really different had I not, um, you know, actually been subject to the same kind of stuff. Sleep with me or. Yeah. Well, I know, like, uh, like my, my wife, when she was an undergrad at Rutgers, she was absolutely in awe of one of her professors, uh, Stephen Bronner, this like philosopher and political scientist at Rutgers. And uh, he was like this, you know, Marxist, very charismatic, really kind of like amazing, powerful speaker, brilliant. And she was in awe of him. And uh, he had his office hours in a bar which was a way of making sure that the only students who could come to see him in office hours were students who could get through the front door, uh, which was a way of making sure you were like of age, uh, legal age. And then, oh. and then he made, he made comments like in her uh, presence often like, well, you know, I, I think probably women shouldn't be in the university, but if they're going to be here, they should at least be fun to look at. And she was just yeah. crushed. And she, you know, she had considered going into philosophy, uh, you know, after that. And and she sort of took a kind of Thrasymachian uh, turn after that. And she decided, you know what? Fuck it. It's all about power. I, if I want to, like, prove myself as a woman, I need to just go and, like, get power and money. And so she, rather than going to grad school... She, uh, after Rutgers, you know, she finished top of her class and she went and worked on Wall Street for a number of years and was a trader on Wall Street. And she was like in a firm where she was one of uh, eight women uh, in a firm of like over 200 uh, traders. And she made like top 10 trader numerous <laughs> numerous quarters uh but eventually she felt her soul dribbling away you know and so she <laughs> uh, she stopped that and went back to, went back to grad school and uh, that's when we met in baltimore at, at hopkins but she said she was really kind of it, it was just such a disillusioning moment where this person who talked about universal values and progressive values and was introducing her to all these like amazing ideas uh, was just such a piece of shit in real life. Right. And, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, like he's like what, 17 now, Bronner, like he's taught thousands and thousands. How many young women has he turned off from philosophy? Oh, probably lots. And, you know, honestly, it's, sometimes asked why it is that John Rawls had so many women students, um, which he did. He had a striking number of women, um, you know, graduate students. 
And my answer has always been because he treated us, he was the only person who treated us as if we were in the original position. He didn't notice or he acted as if he didn't notice that we were any different from the men. Um, and, but he was the only one wow. in my generation that I encountered. That's a beautiful and, thing to hear. Cause that, that tells me that dude walked his talk, you know, like, I like that. Dude walked his, walked his talk. He really did. Um, you know, there are many ways in which I'm not a Rawlsian, but there are also many ways in which I didn't appreciate him till, uh, you know, it was too late to really have some conversations with him that I wish I'd had. But, um, yeah, here, I'll tell you another before I'm, I'm, my throat is actually starting to go. So we're going to have to quit. Okay. Well, let's finish with this anecdote. I'll tell you a nice Rawls story. Um, he, and, and he was very, he was like the opposite of, of, uh, of self-righteous or, uh, I, I've called him pathologically humble, but I, <laughs> I, by accident once that he read every graduate student paper twice because he didn't want to be influenced by the order in which he graded them. <laughs> now, you <Wow>. know. <laughs> You know that you are influenced, right? You're tired. You've heard it. You've seen it all. You know, you, I, I mean, of course, and you try to, <coughs> you try to uh, discard for that. But Oh, um, sure. I When I grade papers when I'm like sick or, or, or kind of tired, it's totally different than when I grade first thing in the morning or after a glass of wine. Absolutely. I, I'm a friendly grader absolutely. after a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack read, Jack read every graduate student paper twice, and um, because he wanted to be absolutely Mister Fairness, um, and uh, yeah, he was. But he was again in in that generation where there were you have to remember there were absolutely no women uh, teaching at Harvard at the time in philosophy. Uh, there were it was like one woman per class. Um, it was, you know, it was right. and, and Jack was the only person who, who was really, um, simply made you feel like your gender didn't matter. He was interested in what you had to say. And that was that. And he would criticize it the same, whatever you did, but it was very rare. And I am sure that, uh, lots of people, lots of women were discouraged, uh, presumably not just in philosophy, but in many other fields. At the same time, I <laughs> somebody hacked my Wikipedia account and put in a bunch of sentences about how few women they were there are in philosophy, which kind of annoyed me because um, nobody is interested in being recognized. Uh, qua some property that they can't do anything about any more than um, it would be reasonable to uh, recognize Anthony Appia because he's a black philosopher. He's just a really good philosopher. And I would prefer not to have somebody all over my Wikipedia page going uh, how good it is that I exist because there are so few women in philosophy. <laughs> Just to say that I didn't put it in there and you don't really control your Wikipedia. No, you don't. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I'm going to ask you something. I haven't asked anybody this before on the podcast, but I'm going to ask you uh, if it's okay with you. I would love to uh, 
maybe get you back on the podcast a month or two from now because I still have so many questions here that I would love to ask you. Uh, but I recognize that you're dying of the coronavirus, and uh, and you you have no voice. You have no voice left. Is, would that be all right? Um, on the assumption that I don't have the coronavirus, <laughs> and this is not my last uh, yes. last. Um, in principle, I'd be very happy, John. Uh, the thing is, uh, a month from now, um, April's kind of out. I am. Um, all over the place. Touring. So per- perhaps May, May or June. Yeah, um, t- more towards the end of May would would should should work just fine. Perfect. Um, all right. Well, I hope you get okay. over your cold flu soon, and uh, have a good <laughs> good night's sleep in Berlin. And I, I, I answered your Me Too questions. You did. You did. You did very very well. It's a very complicated. Answer. It's yet another tripwire that you've. Uh, <laughs> but uh, have have a wonderful yeah. uh, have wonderful sleep. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Bye. I take it. Bye.